The preaching of God's Word is found in Luke chapter 18, and there verses 24 through 27. Luke 18, verses 24 through 27. This is at the tail end of that interaction between Christ and that ruler who came, and what a question it was he asked. Good Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? We considered the verses that lead up to that which is before us this morning, and we discovered that this man who came to Christ still had some hope, some expectation that he could perform something in order to inherit the kingdom of heaven, to be saved, as is raised in verse 26. But Christ was pointing out that so strong is man's love to self and sin that it is impossible for man to do so. Here then what follows, verses 24 through 27. And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And that they that heard it said, Who then can be saved? And he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. These few verses for our consideration this morning. We see, of course, throughout the Scriptures that there is no greater need than that of salvation. And yet we also see, not only through the Scriptures, but our own experience, that there is nothing more put off by men or casually treated of by men than their soul. And so men are happy to invest hours upon hours to learn and to gain an education and degree. They're happy to invest and sacrifice time for further instruction in their craft and training that they perhaps would become more skillful and obtain uh, greater remuneration. Uh, And people are happy to invest in their athletic prowess and to grow and develop in athleticism. And yet when it comes to the greatest need, even as Christ said, there is one thing needful. When it comes to that one thing needful, men find it a difficulty to invest so much as 10 minutes a day or even an hour on the Lord's Day, let alone the whole of the Lord's Day for their soul's benefit. And so what a refreshing thing it is when we see this man appear on the scene and with earnestness ask the Lord Jesus Christ, good Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This one has become convicted. You can think for a moment. There was a crowd around the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as with us, so with him, certainly even more so because he was a sort of dignitary among the synagogue, a ruler with great dignity, that it would have been somewhat embarrassing to see this man press through the crowd and to appear before Christ with all of these signs of earnestness and saying with that desire, what is it that I must do to inherit eternal life? We find it difficult at times on the Lord's Day to be earnest. We find it difficult at times in the secrecy of our own closets of prayer to be earnest. Well, here's a man who is struck through his heart 
with the reality that he had a desperate need to be saved. And it's a question worthy of asking yourselves, is such known by you? Do you have that kind of earnestness that says, I will shake off all the other constraints simply to find out more about salvation? Well, we saw that even with such earnestness, there was a great defect. And Christ, with the masterful skill that he has, helped this man see it. Go, says he, and sell all that you have, distribute among the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And it's then that the man hears this, verse 23, and becomes sorrowful, and it says, because he was very rich. And notice that Christ says in our text, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God. And then notice the image he uses. He appeals to the eye of a needle. Now, some of you have had that frustrating experience of trying to thread a needle's eye. And you find that the frayed end of the thread won't go through. It presses on it. It falls apart more so. You have to wet it. You have to twist it again. And with great and skillful hand, steady hand, you have to put the thread through that narrow eye. Well, Christ obliterates that challenge and says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. He's not saying that it's 99% more difficult. What he's pointing out is it's impossible. That's the point. And in Mark's gospel, we're given a bit more clarity because Mark records Christ as including in his statement, they that trust in riches. So he's not just saying, listen, riches are the great problem. He's testifying of rich men being further tempted with a common love that we all have to ourselves. And when riches abound, their love, as it were, is all the more strengthened to the things of this world. And so notice again the terms that Christ presents. Sell all that you have. What's he saying? Cut it off. Throw it away. And follow me. What he's presenting to the man is not this financial term, but rather a term of allegiance. He's saying to the rich man, here's the term of entering into the kingdom of heaven. It's that your whole heart, your whole being, everything that you are must be mine. Nothing outside of the parameters. So those of you who have jobs, you can think of this, of course, Your job has certain demands upon your life. And within the proper boundaries, they have a claim upon what you should do or not do. But there are some things that are left to your own discretion and certainly outside of their sphere. So you report to work or you're in the factory or you're working from home and you have certain guidelines and demands put upon you. But if your boss called you up and said, listen, I have demand for you uh, if you want to keep your job and you say, "Okay, well, what is it? You know, you have to paint all of your walls blue at home. You'd say, what are you you talking about? That's not in your parameter. It's not within your sphere. You don't have that kind of authority. That's left to me to determine. This is understood, of course, in all manner of relationships. But here's the thing when it comes to Christ. There is nothing left to us if it is that we should be saved. Nothing. 
There's not an area in our life that is left to our own discretion. There's not an aspect of our desires, of our time, of our energy that is meant to be our own. It is that we come to the king and he says, I give you all. And I'm saying you must indeed relinquish all. If we could imagine it, Christ coming to us and holding forth salvation and we asking him, what will you give us? He says, I give you everything. Well, what is it that I must give you? And in one sense, he could say, I don't ask you to give me anything. I ask you to relinquish everything. That's what's coming to this man. There are other ways of looking at the entrance into the Lord's kingdom. But notice this then provokes those around. So it's not a private interaction between Christ and the ruler. It's a public interaction. They that heard it said, who then can be saved? Christ doesn't say the poor. He doesn't say those that are not rich. He doesn't say those that are broken and defeated and you know those that are castaways and cast outs. He doesn't say that. But he gives us the essence that touches upon all of salvation. Notice he says, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Children, some of you would think it impossible to thread the eye of a needle with a piece of thread. How much more impossible to take a camel and shove it through the needle's eye. It is impossible with us. We could sit down with a challenge and say, if you can do this, you'll receive a billion dollars. And we look at it and think of it perhaps just out of curiosity. And we come to the end most necessarily. There's no way. It's utterly impossible to get the camel through the eye of the needle. That's the force of this message. It is utterly impossible with men. But that only opens to our attention where our hope rests, that it's possible with God. In other words, Christ is directing not only this ruler, but all those about who hear, and thus us by influence and instruction by his word today, of the only hope for our salvation, which is in God's mercy. Remember the connection before we move on. That Christ has said, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. Hear that language? Shall no wise enter therein. There's no entering in to the kingdom. Just as the camel cannot enter through the needle's eye, so none shall enter into the kingdom of God except as an infant they receive it from God. What's God getting at? He's saying that there is nothing for us but utter and complete dependence upon God. It is a giving up of our attempts. It is a giving up of our holding to these threads of our own works. And it is a receiving of all that is promised unto us and held forth to us in Christ. This is why the promises of God are so important and vital for us to know. We must know the commandments for a variety of reasons. They tell us the holy will of God. They reveal to us His holy law. They inform us as to the right path. They warn us against sin. They bring about conviction when we realize we have sinned. For the believer, they instruct us in the way of righteousness. 
But brethren, without the promises, we have no foundation for our hope. What is it that God promises to do? What is it that God offers unto us? The promises are so full and necessary. Well, as we consider then what is impossible with men and thus possible with God, consider three things. Firstly, the demand. Secondly, the difficulty. And thirdly, the deliverance. The demand, the difficulty, and the deliverance. What is the demand for entrance into God's kingdom? It's interesting, the man asks, what shall I do to inherit? And of course, Christ sees what he's asking, which is parallel to and synonymous with asking, what must I do to enter into the kingdom of God? Verse 25, which is synonymous and parallel to what can I do? What must I do to be saved? Verse 26. So he's asking inherit eternal life, which Christ says is the same as asking to enter into the kingdom of God. And those around him realize it's the same thing as asking to be saved. These are all the same expression. Well, what is it then that Christ demands? If ever we should inherit the kingdom of heaven, if ever we should enter into that kingdom, if ever we should be saved. Well, you'll notice that in this particular context, he addresses this, as we call him, rich young ruler, and puts his finger upon the very obvious but hidden hindrance. And it's this man's riches. But it's not just the man's riches. It's the man's entanglement with the riches. It's the man's love for these riches. It is, as in Mark's gospel, the man's trust in these riches. Not trusting that they're the means by which he shall be saved, but rather his reliance upon them, his embrace of them, his miserly grip upon riches and all that it holds forth for the enjoyment of life in this world. And Christ puts his finger on the riches and says, this must go. Now, this isn't a universal call for all men to sell everything that they have and distribute to the poor and be, as it were, those who travel here and there following Christ. It was, we must remember, particularized to him as a particular instance of a more universal call. And so remember what Christ says elsewhere, where he says, if ye would be my disciple, what does he say to those who would be his disciple? He says, you must deny yourself. You must take up your cross and you must follow me. That's a universal truth that goes forth to anyone who would be Christ's disciple. In other words, we can look at the demand in some sense as an outward demand, and we want to be wrong in seeing that because it will touch upon the way that we live. This man had been become entangled with his love for riches, even though he was moral, religious, and earnest. Though those things were true, and no one could put a finger upon him for a scandal, no one could raise up a charge and say, this man I saw in the evening hours with this woman who was not his wife, this man I saw stealing from the poor, no one could do that. He was outwardly, as it were, free of scandal. And yet, his great sin disclosed itself outwardly as well. His love for pleasure his love for the things of this world demonstrated themselves, notice, 
in his unwillingness to part with them. And so you and I may be sitting here relative to the United States of America and be neither poor nor rich. We may be in poverty. We may be rich. It doesn't matter. But notice this. When we look at this man and we see, well, you know, he was called to give up riches. And what do I have to give up? I don't have much. Well, the question that must be asked is, where is it that your heart's allegiance to self manifests itself? That's the difficulty. This man showed himself through his love for riches. For others, it'll be sports. For others, it'll be family. For others, it'll be friendships, entertainment, me time, my time, television, other things that so are taken in to their soul. And it causes them great delight. They love all of these different things and their allegiance is to them. There's nothing sinful about riches in and of itself. There were rich men in God's kingdom, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We see that again and again. So it's not that that's sinful, but there was a sinful allegiance to those things. And this is what's difficult for us to examine about ourselves. It's easy for us to see when things are sinful that we must give those up. If someone, for instance, is involved in idolatry, it's no question. It must be given up. If someone is interested or involved in you know, stealing, it must be given up. If one is interested and in, involved in uh, desecrating the Sabbath, it must be given up. It's, there's not a question to those things. It's black and white. It's clear. The law of God is shining brilliantly upon that. But what's difficult is when there are things that are permissible or indifferent of themselves, and yet it's that where our heart is attached to. Sports can be one in our own culture. Entertainment can be another. Uh, All these kinds of things that in and of themselves are neither sinful nor righteous, but permissible are the things that may grip our hearts and be the scene wherein our love to self is manifest. In other words, the demand is pointing to a display that through the display is pointing into the heart of man. The demand is ultimately challenging the heart's disposition to love itself. That's the fundamental matter. That's what's in back of all of this that's taking place. When the people that hear it say, who then can be saved? See again, Christ doesn't say those who don't have riches. Because one who is dirt poor, one who doesn't have a penny to his name, can be as in love with himself as the richest and most wicked man there is in this world. Because the issue is not the amount of money, it's not the amount of influence and so on that one has in this world. The issue is the heart's allegiance. And you can see this from the very beginning of the scriptures. God says to Adam and Eve, There's this tree thou shalt not eat thereof. The day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Simple, plain, clear. What happens? Satan comes and he creeps in and he says, listen, hath God said? He says, oh, you'll not surely die. And he brings Adam and Eve to consider, look, the fruit is good for food. It's beautiful to the eye. It's able to make one wise. And here is the sin. Eve looks at it and makes an autonomous decision. I want it. I'll have it. 
And it's the same thing that's mentioned again in 1 John, and James addresses it as well. That sin is brought through, as it were, the eye's lust. I want it. It's mine. I must have it. I desire it. This is my uh, earnest desire. It's what satisfies me. It's what John writes in his gospel. Men love darkness rather than light. In spite of the fact that Christ comes and holds forth the riches of salvation and everlasting life, men sit with their arms crossed or with tears on their face, and they will not let go of that which is upon the throne of their heart, the image of themselves. The demand, in other words, is to cherish Christ above all else, to take hold of Christ above all else. If it were simply a prayer, that's rather easy to accomplish, isn't it? Multitudes of so-called youth conferences and so-called revivals and so on have led multitudes others to read and to recite a prayer in earnest that goes through the basics. You know, I believe I'm a sinner. I believe that Christ died for sinners and I trust in Christ. And then they get literally some sort of certificate that says, on this day, you gave yourself up for Christ. Now, it could very well be that someone in earnest was in that way trusting in Christ. But time has proven that the majority of those who have so signed cards, gone forward at such rallies, then have disclosed the fact through what follows that they left themselves on their throne. That whatever they confessed, Whatever they said, whatever they did, they didn't actually see themselves dethroned from their hearts. Whosoever says, think of this language, Lord. And yet there are those who in the last day will say, Lord, Lord, did we not? And yet he will have a ready answer for them in showing where they had not embraced him as king. The demand, in other words, for our salvation, for entrance into that everlasting kingdom is the solitary embrace of Christ and the relinquishing of ourselves as lords. What's the difficulty then? The difficulty is what each of us faces and have faced. Firstly, there is a preeminent love to self. This is the source of every squabble in this world. It's the source of every war and battle in this world. And it's the source of that most heinous and wicked rebellion that is ongoing between men and God. Think of it. Christ goes preaching what? The kingdom of God. Christ comes into the world that's rebelled against him. And he says, there is a king. And it is God. And I come proclaiming to you, this kingdom is here. What are the terms of it? You know, can we barter? Can we bargain? Can we reason? Can we get together? I'll do this if you do that. Christ says, absolutely not. Repent and believe the gospel. There are no other terms. There are no uh, ways of sort of bargaining out a different thing. You know, if you find yourself indebted in this world financially, there are actually industries that have been established to help you bargain off part of your debt. So that if you're $10,000 in debt, 
$100,000 in debt, you can work as it were a deal in order to have some of it, if not all of it, forgiven, and then you can pay off a little bit more. Or, for instance, if you receive some sort of traffic ticket, there are lawyers and attorneys that if you pay them a fee, will then funnel the money to the court and because of different things, allow your ticket to be paid off through driving school and other such things. There's a bargaining going on there. There's still something you must do. Well, Christ comes in the preaching of the gospel and says, here are the terms. You relinquish everything. You give it all up. Everything that you thought was yours is now mine. Everything that you held to yours as dear is now with an open hand held. And you say to me, take what you desire and leave the rest. If it's my family, I will not hold on to them with an iron fist. If it's my health, it's yours to do with, O Lord, as you desire. If it's my finances, they're like wings that fly away. It's in your hands. We hold nothing in this life any longer as that which is our own to hold on to because our hands are fully holding on to Christ and we're saying Lord you do with my marriage Lord you do with my children Lord you do with my job Lord you do with my life with my health with everything I am as you desire because my sole interest is having you this is what Christ is getting at with the man and the man notice not trivially But he hears it, verse 23, and he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. This is why Christ says it's difficult. It's not just because of the riches. It's because the riches enhance the problem. Each of us knows this. If you look at third world countries, you don't see peaceful places where everything's in harmony. You see brokenness and miseries that are like our own. And yet it's a different scale, a different manifestation. And when riches are shoved into these third world countries, lo and behold, what doesn't happen? What doesn't happen is society gets better. It may get richer. It may indeed become enhanced. But what's actually enhancing is the display of sin. And so the United States is not the most righteous nation, certainly though it may be among the most rich. It is in many ways the most refined and wicked nation that exists today. That may not they may sound like an overstatement, but consider the law of God and consider the ways in which our nation publicly sets aside and violates God's law and does so with business suits and private jets and everything else and does so in under the guise of this civility. And yet, in reality, the riches of our nation have only enhanced sinners' ability to manifest their sin in more, quote, refined ways. The reason is not the haves and the have-nots. That's the lie of social justice theory and everything else. Because the issue is not there are haves and have-nots, and the haves get it, and they have their lives better. The have-nots don't have it, and if they had it, then they'd be better. The issue that everyone is missing is there is a fundamental allegiance to self. You pump money into that, that doesn't make the self better. It simply enhances the ability of self to satisfy his own lusts. Now, he may become more moral, he may become more religious, But unless there's the radical, 
that is the change that strikes at the roots of the matter, the soul of the sinner, unless that's addressed, all that's happened with the increase of riches is the increase of the ability to seek out one's own pleasures. This is why you see this at various times when Christians inherit wealth. And you'll see this in biographies and diaries and, uh, you know, these things that are related to us that someone will come into money and they'll speak with their pastor and say, I need prayer. I need help. I need counsel. I need guidance. Well, what's going on? Is someone dying? Are you sick? Are you terminally ill? No, no. I've inherited a grand estate. And I know that unless God gives me grace, that will be my undoing. So many people think of this in America are thirsting after the increase of riches without addressing the actual problem, which is their love to self. The difficulty is this preeminent love to self. Riches merely enhance the means to pursue it, to seek after it. That's why Christ says how Hardly shall they that have riches, or as Mark's gospel, who trust in riches, enter into the kingdom of God. Their reliance is upon that. What happens in your own lives when afflictions come? You get a feeling in your chest, and it flutters, pain shoots through your arm. Instantly you realize, I could be in trouble. Everything sort of goes away, and you realize how important your physical health is. What happens when it is that you're Uh, estate is challenged by financial difficulty what happens when a loved one is terminally ill all of a sudden the realities of life hit you but if by grace they hit you they make you see the one thing needful is being sure of Christ Jesus that's what Christ is getting at the difficulty is that though even awakened men will speak of everlasting life They have not come to see the detestable fact that they themselves are their own downfall. They themselves are their own problem. They can contribute nothing to the entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Not by riches, not by wealth, not by health, not by labor, not by more earnestness in prayer. None of it. Because the root of the problem is oneself. This is the difficulty. And the men see this. And they say, who then can be saved? This brings us thirdly to the deliverance. And Christ says it so simply, doesn't he? The things which are impossible with men. Now there are many things which are impossible with men. Think of that for a moment, children. Perhaps you have an art class at home or you go to school and you have an assignment. You know, you're supposed to make this pot. You're supposed to make this uh, drawing. And you go about and it's difficult, but you make it. What if your mom or your teacher said to you, I want you to create something out of nothing. You say, look, what are you talking about? What do you mean create something out of nothing? I mean, literally, I want you to take nothing, your handful of nothing, and then create something out of that nothing. You'd say, this must be a joke because that's impossible. You'd be right, it is impossible. You can't do it. I can't do it. No one in this world can do it. Things must be brought together, reordered, structured, and so on, in order for there to be the formation of something else. But you'll know as well as I do, that in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. There wasn't a pre-existing mass of material. He spoke 
And there it was. By his word, out of nothing, the world was brought forth and the world was formed by his word. That's one thing that is impossible with men, but possible with God. But in context, Christ is talking about entrance into God's kingdom. And he says that is among the things which is impossible with man. May I entreat you for a moment to consider this. If your mind and conscience and soul holds on to the slightest shred of hope that you can do something, be something, say something that will cause you to enter into God's kingdom, you are grossly mistaken. And you are still in the same position as this certain ruler. Your bank account may not reflect his bank account. Your social status may not be even to his But the fundamental problem is one and the same. This man thought, I can do something. Something must be in my hands in order to contribute and do. And Christ says, it's impossible with men. And so it is that deliverance is not by man. It's not by yourself. It's not by any in this world. But he says, and here is our great hope. He says, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. The idea of possibility has to do with ability or power. God has the ability to do what man does not have the ability to do. Now, if we could muster our souls to become concerned about salvation, and think of this for a moment, in our health and strength, we can be struck by the reality of death, but it's usually an affliction that comes and strikes us and makes us say, I'm going to die someday. That can happen when we're young. Perhaps we have to go to the hospital. Perhaps we have a loved one who's in the hospital. Perhaps we hear the sad and grieving news of a child our own age that has died and is now being buried. Those kinds of things can strike us. And we realize then, I must die. Now the world has come along, and in this, re- in this season of the history of the world, has begun to multiply this thought that everyone who dies goes to a better place. Right? You hear this. You hear this at so-called celebrations of life, or if they still return the term, or retain the term funeral, you'll hear everyone that, however wicked their life was, however godless, atheistic, blasphemous their life was, they're in a better place. Well, at least they're now no longer riddled with pain. At least their sorrows are no more. When in reality, the scriptures are emphatic on this statement. If one dies without Christ, they instantly enter into that un- ending misery, awaiting the resurrection of the damned, that their bodies would be joined with that. And brethren, when that grips us, that is a thought that is most terrifying. Remember, here's a man who is outwardly religious, outwardly moral, and yet he's still earnest. What must I do? I don't have it. I need it. I realize that this life will end. I need that which lasts forever. When that strikes us, and then we see... I can't do anything. There's nothing I can do. There's no hope. There's no alternative. There's no other option. You're sealed up to the one way. And here's the issue. The one way is not in your power. The one way is not in your hand. The one way is not in your ability. The one way is with God. Do you know what that does when that grips you and strikes you? It does two things to the unbeliever. It infuriates him. Because now he is face to face with this reality. 
the biggest and most important thing of my life is outside of my control. Many of you will be familiar with the the name Jonathan Edwards, and he's known for a number of things, not least of which was being a Reformed theologian in the American colonies. But he speaks, even though he was bred in the Puritan heritage of his father and grandfather, he spoke as being a young man, despising the fact that the scriptures taught that God is absolutely sovereign. He speaks and he writes of this in his experience when he says, when I came to realize what the Bible is teaching, that God is sovereign over salvation, I despised that truth. And he opens a bit and acknowledges that the reason was because it took it out of his hands and placed it in the hands of another. Remember what Christ said? Whosoever shall not, notice this language, verse 17, receive the kingdom of God as a little child. What does an infant contribute to his life? An infant is entirely passive in all the care that is brought to him. An infant is without contribution. Rather, everything is contributed to him. When we realize that it is with God alone and his sovereignty, we're instantly put in the position of realizing ourselves but passive infants dependent upon one to give us everything. The other thing it will do is it will present to us this fact that if ever I shall be saved, it must be by the God against whom I've sinned. Do you think of this for a moment? Imagine that your previous life perhaps was, perhaps was not. But imagine that it was a life of crime. We hear about reports in the St. Louis area of all of these car thefts that are taking place and everything else. And it's appalling, isn't it? And quite concerning that it's mentioned often that you see in the reports a 14-year-old, a 16-year-old, a 17-year-old went on this car theft spree and they took the car and they shot this person. And you're astounded. A 14-year-old is involved in these things. You hear about 13-year-old girls getting pregnant. You hear about 13-year-old boys engaged in those things. And it's striking to us regarding all of that, how utterly repulsive it is. Imagine, though, that that was your life. Imagine that you've held people up at gunpoint. Imagine that you've murdered people. And now imagine this, that one that you've murdered is none less than a family member of the chief of police or of the judge of a court. And your only hope of having your sentence, as it were, lessened, of your judgment being removed, is that the one against whom you've sinned who has all authority and all power, is the one who will pardon you. And you'll become, understand this, you'll get close to the idea of our peril. Our hope rests in the God against whom we've sinned, being gracious to us. That obviously causes great terror to come over the soul. But notice what Christ says. The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. The gospel comes and it reveals a God not only who is able, 
but is merciful to save. Notice again the context that spreads before us. Here's a man who is a publican, verse 13, who would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven. What does he do? He smites upon his breast and he says these things. God, I'll do better next time. God, I'll change my life around. God, I'll start doing more. I'll start earnestly serving you more. I'll pray more. I'll come to church. I'll change all about my life for you. He says none of that. He makes no promise. He gives no resolution. He rather acknowledges exactly what Christ is cultivating in us. And his soul plea is this. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. More strictly, it's God, be propitious to me, the sinner. What am I? I'm the sinner. I've rebelled against you. And my only plea is that you would be propitious, that you would forgive, that you would remove my guilt and my, the wrath that is due unto me. I bring all and I cast it to you and I put it all in your hands and I say, Oh God, I have nothing to contribute I gather up all that I am and I say it's deplorable, O God. And I ask you, forgive my sins. Now notice what Christ says to our great encouragement. I tell you, this man, this sinner, went down to his house justified, declared righteous. What's being taught to us throughout this chapter, yea, throughout this gospel and throughout the Bible is this, that the deliverance comes by God who is gracious and willing to forgive our sins. And what happens is God, as it were, to his people, so brings them to that point of despair, giving up their own deeds, giving up their own works, giving up their own attempts and makes them rest all upon God in Christ Jesus. My only hope is not that I'll do better, not that I'll change my life, though that should be done. My only hope is, O oh God, that you are gracious and able to bring me into the kingdom of God, that you would give it to me. Children, you know this. What's the opposite of receiving? Well, you could say it's buying, perhaps, but sometimes you buy something and you receive it then. But really, the opposite of receiving is not buying. The opposite of receiving is giving. In other words, if you're going to receive something, someone else must be giving it to you. And so when Christ says in verse 17, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child is likewise necessarily saying that God is the one who gives the kingdom of God. It's he who does it. And this is what Christ is getting at again. It's impossible with men. You can't give yourself the kingdom of God. You can't earn yourself the kingdom of God. You can't purchase for yourself the kingdom of God. But here's the wondrous truth. God may bring you to that point of saying, I can do nothing. And then open your eyes to see it's God who gives. And we say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Well, as we consider this deliverance that is by grace alone, through the gift of God, by Jesus Christ, may I ask, is there a young ruler in this room.
You say, well, of course not. You know, I'm not an elder in the church, perhaps. I'm certainly not rich and whatever else. Um, I couldn't even say that all these have I kept from my youth up. Well, I'm not asking, does your description fit all the circumstances of the young ruler? I'm asking rather, does your case fit the description? Are you one trusting in what you can do? Oh, I need to be saved, so this is what I'll do. I'll start reading more. I'll read this book. I'll talk to these people. I'll do all those things. All those things may be right to do. But the question is, where is your reliance? The question is, to what are you attached? Are you looking to be able to say in some way, shape, or form, look, because I prayed this prayer, because I spoke to that person, that's why I'm saved. Instead of, as it were, taking all and going unto God who has disclosed His great kindness and mercy and saying, God, you do it. I can't do it. Save me. I've been brought to the desperate straits of this reality. It is impossible with me. But I look solely to you. You see, how shall you be saved? Your love for yourself is too strong. You'll never unseat it. You'll never dethrone it. Your love for the things of this world is too great. You'll never overthrow it of yourself. Your need, in fact, is greater than you know and realize. You may tell yourself, well, I'm different than the other kids at school. I'm different than the youth of my generation. My family functions differently. I'm free of all those scams. I would never be caught stealing a car. I would be, never be caught putting a gun to someone's face. I would never be caught in such compromised situations. I'm different than they are. Therefore, surely God will be merciful to me. And there's the fatal problem. That's what the Pharisee was in that testimony. I thank thee that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I receive. He was better in outward ways than the publican, but he was dead in his sins and went home to his house condemned. Whereas the one who came and say, here I am, the sinner. I stand condemned. I plead, be merciful to me. If you sit fitting that description of a self trusting, self-righteous one, free of scandal, religious, earnest even, your only hope is in God's mercy. Your only hope is to see the world for what it is, to see the problem for what it is, and to come as the penitent, be merciful to me, the sinner. Because what is impossible with you, see it, say it in fact, It is impossible for me to contribute even the slightest ounce unto salvation is yet possible with God. Brethren, it is a glad thing to know that there are those here who have been saved. But may I ask you, if you've been brought into the kingdom of God, how is that the case? Now, we can look at the means that God employed. We can say perhaps why at a godly family, a godly parent. I had a faithful pastor, a faithful elder. I had a faithful Christian friend who did this. Or there's a Bible given to me and all of those things. I went to this church and was invited. I went to one of the youth rallies you mentioned. And though doubtlessly there are many mistakes, yet God used that 
for my salvation. All of those things may be true, but see this most clearly, essentially, fundamentally, most simply, it's this. If you've been brought into the kingdom of God, it is because God of his grace has brought you in, period. It's not because you're better than your friend who's still in a sin. This is a a searching thought. Some of you, like I, can think back to days past and say, I was the gateway for others entering into different sins. And they remain in those sins. In other words, they stand in those bondages because of something I've contributed to them. I brought them to do these things. I invited them to do these things. I mocked them when they didn't do these things. And they were brought into that. And they stand still enslaved to those vices. But God has brought me out. Why? Because of something I deserved or I did to get myself out. But simply because God has given his kingdom. God saved you. This is cause for unending praise. This is cause for unending devotion. This is cause for joyful, sacrificial following of Christ. When it is that that's realized and Christ says, let this go, the heart of the Christian says, it's yours, it's not mine anyway. When Christ comes and says, I'm going to afflict your life now. Though we say, Lord, remember me in your mercies, yet we submit to the yoke of Christ because we know that he's good. And it's not our life anyway. We now have been brought to trust him who is good, knowing that it is he who works all things together for the good of those that love him. Notice what Paul says, who are called according to his purpose who've been brought into the kingdom of God. Brethren, if you've been brought in, you've been brought in not for any quality in yourself. You've not been brought in for any foreseen good you would contribute. You've not been brought in for any good that you have done, would do, or otherwise. You've been brought in even as an infant receives provision for this life. You've been freely given of God's love, His kingdom. If that's the case, though the world looks at you and says, how uninteresting, how little, how insignificant, you have a sight for your soul to rejoice. God has given you his kingdom. Would you stand with me for prayer?